0: Greetings to the good Bible students at St. Andrew the Apostle. I'm actually presenting this lecture this afternoon on Easter Sunday in anticipation of our April 15th, I'm sorry, April 13th class that would normally meet at 930 in the parish hall. This is the way we're making do in the time of uh, COVID-19 And uh, with that in mind, let's begin, as we always do, with the word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together today and online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light, pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I should begin the lecture with the bold proclamation, He is risen, to which you would all heartily respond, He has risen indeed. You, I'm sure, are much like Diane and I, trying to find a way to celebrate the events of Holy Week, the Tritium, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. We did our best with live stream options, uh, particularly those that are put together at the church where Diane runs her spirituality center, that's St. Bridget's in Mesa. Father Scott Brubaker and uh, the ministry team there did a very nice job. We listened to a number of homilies on the individual days from various and sundry sources, including an excellent homily from Father John B. at Mount Carmel on Easter Vigil evening. Having said that, we are going to return now. Uh, to the Gospel of John, we're going to be, for the purpose of this lecture, beginning in John chapter 19, making our way into John chapter 20, which is the chapter dedicated in the Gospel of John to the event of the resurrection. So if all goes according to plan, I should be able to address the narrative of the resurrection today in a most timely manner. We're in the midst of the passion of our Lord and Savior. And we walk back into the Passion in the opening verses of chapter 19, noting that Pilate, in deference to the religious leaders who are insisting that Jesus be put to death, thought he could assuage their anger, their vehement demand that the life of Jesus be handed over to them by ordering that Jesus be scourged. And the soldiers, having completed that most torturous experience, wove a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and clothed him in a purple cloak. And they came to him and they mocked him by saying, Hail, hail to the king of the Jews. And they struck him. And we would understand on the head, driving that crown of thorns uh, deeper and deeper into his scalp repeatedly. Now, after making sport of Jesus in this way, his back opened to the air, wounds bleeding profusely, he's brought once more to Pilate. And Pilate then stands before those who are demanding that Jesus be crucified and says to those assembled before him, look, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find No guilt in him. What more can you imagine me being willing to do to essentially an innocent man, is what he is saying. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, mocking his, ah, well, mocking their claim that he claimed to be king of the Jews, and the purple cloak, a cloak associated with the color of royalty, And Pilate said to all of them, behold the man, or reading between the lines, behold your man. Here he is, bloodied, brutalized, ripped apart with a crown of thorns in mockery and well covered by this purple robe. I was always intrigued as to where a purple robe would be sourced. Certainly it wasn't just lying around in the chamber where the soldiers made sport of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, remember written by a medical doctor who has a keen insight into the details of the Gospel, especially when they involve anything having to do with medical issues, gives us the answer to the question. So I'm going to hold our place here and just look briefly at Luke chapter 23 and the 11th Verse. Because in the same scene, we have Jesus in Luke chapter 23 before Pilate. And Pilate learns in Luke chapter 23 verse 5 that he, meaning Jesus, is uh, inciting the people with his teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he began even to hear. And then we note, upon hearing this, Pilate asked, his associates, if the man was, in fact, a Galilean. And upon learning that he was under, then, Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time, obviously, to celebrate the Passover. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He had been wanting to see him for a long time, for he had heard about him and had been hoping to see him perform some miraculous sign. And Herod, Luke records... Questioned him at length, but he gave him no answer. He never responded. The chief priests and scribes, meanwhile, stood by, accusing him harshly. Remember, this takes place in another part of the city of Jerusalem, somewhere in close proximity to the Antonia Fortress, where Herod and his minions have taken up residence for the duration of the feast. Well, in verse 11 we learn that even Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus contemptuously and mocked him and after clothing him in resplendent garb. Clothing him with that purple robe, a robe associated with royalty because the color purple and scarlet red and deep blue are very difficult and therefore expensive to produce. And he sent him back to Pilate. And in verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends that very day, even though they had been enemies formerly, because when Pontius Pilate would annually arrive in Jerusalem, he would take up residence in the palatial estates of Herod and send Herod packing to some other location in the city. He would then despoil... The residents, upon his departure, just turning the screws a little bit to let Herod know who was really in charge. Well, it was in this audience before Herod that Jesus was presented this purple cloak, this cloak of royal color. And therefore, that is why it was available for this mockery and display in John chapter 19. Now, I come back to John chapter 19, and we return to chapter 19 and verse 6. When the chief priests, having heard Pilate say, Behold, your man. When the chief priests and the guards saw him, they all cried out in unison, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Effectively, no. I want no part of this. Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. But the Jews, meaning these same religious leaders, responded, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die, because he made himself the Son of God, or claimed that he was the Son of God, which, for a Jewish person of faith, is utter blasphemy. Now, when Pilate heard this statement, he became even more afraid, or agitated, that some sort of a riotous response would be the result of his ultimate adjudication. And so he went back into the praetorium with Jesus and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus, allowing all of these things to happen to him, will never respond in his own self-defense. Jesus did not answer him. So Pilate said again to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have Power to release you, and I have power to crucify you. And Jesus does respond to this. He answered him and said, You would have no power over me if it had not been given you or to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Effectively, Jesus is saying to Pilate, You are just a pawn in this grand game of salvation. Well, I think he convinces Pilate, because in verse 12, we read, consequently, Pilate tried again to release him. He knows that Jesus is not guilty of anything that should result in capital punishment, certainly not the victimization of an individual through the torture of crucifixion. So he tried again to release him, but the same Jewish religious leaders in verse 12 cried out, If you release him, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king proclaims himself to be a king opposes Caesar. They've moved off the charge of blasphemy because it has no resonance in Pilate's adjudication whatsoever. So they take a new tack and claim that Jesus made himself to be a king. I mean, look at him. He's wrapped in a royal robe, and he's wearing a crown. But of course, those are the implements placed upon him by others. But they're forcing their hand against Caesar. Now, when Pilate, in verse 13, heard these words, he brought Jesus out and officially seated him on the judge's bench in the place called the Stone Pavement. In Hebrew, Gabaatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, now almost noon, which means this was the day before sundown where you would purchase all the items necessary to celebrate the Passover 24-hour period with your family. It's Friday at noon. And he then said in royal pronouncement to the Jews, meaning these Jewish religious leaders opposed to Jesus, Behold, your king and they cried out no no take him away take him away crucify him and pilate said to them shall i crucify your king he's mocking them and the chief priests then self incriminated crying out we have no king but caesar and then finally pilate handed jesus over to them to be crucified now they will not participate in any manner, way, shape, or form in the crucifixion of Jesus, but they are the ones who are held accountable. So they took Jesus. And carrying the cross beam himself, he went out to what is called the Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. It's an abandoned stone quarry just outside the western gate that would lead to the Mediterranean Sea in a direct route from east to west from that exit point. It's a highly trafficked area. It's a place where the Romans would quite often crucify individuals because they would, as dying victims, serve as a visual and vocal deterrent to anyone who might think they could rise up against Rome in Jerusalem. There, in that place of public executions, they crucified him, and with him, two others— one on one side with Jesus in the middle. The two others were associates with Barabbas. They were called bandits while they were trying to steal the authority of Rome. They had committed murder in the name of their leader and his cause. Remember, Barabbas was freed that day, and Jesus then took his place as a crucified victim. Pilate also had an inscription written, And he put it on the cross so that as you walked by, you could read the charge against this man. And it read, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews, meaning Jewish religious leaders, read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, just outside one of its main gates, two main gates, the one leading outside and into the city on the western edge, and the other leading outside and into the city at the northern point of Egress. So this is the gate through which most pilgrims coming from the area that we would associate with the Via Moris would arrive. And it was written, that is, that Jesus, the Nazarene, is the king of the Jews who's being crucified in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. Now, the chief priests and these Jewish religious leaders said to Pilate, do not write, take it down, the king of the Jews. You need to write more specifically that he said, I am or I believe I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It appears that what he wrote was in an form of an acronym. And we see it oftentimes on a crucifix above the head of Jesus, the Latin letters, I-N-R-I, I-N-R-I. In Latin, there is no J consonant. So the I, -I H-I-J-K, there is no J. The I takes the J sound. And so any word that would start with J for you and I like Jewish would actually be written in Latin with the Latin letter I. And so you know that now and think about the signage above Jesus in its Latin abbreviation, I stands for Jesus, N stands for Nazareth, the Nazarean, R, the Latin word King, is Rex, and I, again, the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, I-N-R-I, and that's why when we look at a crucifix, we see that same acronym affixed above the head of our Lord Pilate, in verse twenty two says, "Not going to change it. what I have written, I have written now, in the course of crucifying Jesus, whatever he wore to the site of the crucifixion would be fair game to be divided up against, or among the four soldiers associated with guarding the site and in verse twenty three when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes." and divided them into four shares, a share for each soldier. Meager, to be sure, but this was the common practice at the time. And they also took his tunic. Now, this particular tunic was so well crafted that it seemed to be seamless, almost as if the entire tunic was woven on a single loom. Now, it wasn't. It was actually in pieces attached one to another, but had been done so so expertly. It looked as if it was seamless uh, to the untrained eye. And they took his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top down. And they said to one another, We shouldn't tear this, that is, into four pieces, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it will be. In order that the passage of Scripture might be fulfilled, this is John our gospel author, reminding us of a very important psalm. Psalm 22, verse 19, they divided my garments among them, and for my vesture, my clothing, they cast lots. And this is what the soldiers did. Now, this is not an insignificant point, because obviously John reminds us that this event happened. It could not have been controlled by Jesus. It was a fulfillment of a Sacred text, Psalm twenty-two, that had been written a thousand years earlier, and by the way, five hundred years before crucifixion had ever even been conceived. Crucifixion begins with the ancient Persian Empire. We read about the origins of it in the Book of Esther. It begins with the torturous death by impalement, and then adds agony upon agony upon agony. So that this is what it has devolved to by the time of our Lord's death. One of the things that is omitted in John's crucifixion scene is Jesus crying out from the cross as he does in the synoptic gospel accounts. Eloi, Eloi, laba Thani. Remember, translated into English for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've talked before about the significance of that pronouncement by Jesus. It was not for an instant to be considered a cry of despair. There was not a moment imaginable where God would have turned away from his innocent son dying a sacrificial death. Rather, as I was privileged to learn studying with rabbinic scholars who were experts in New Testament teaching as it related to Judaism, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first lines of Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of David, which dates it a thousand years before Jesus. The circumstance... Of the psalm, David has been deposed from his throne by his oldest son, Absalom. He's on the run. He's despondent. He's reached a point of despair unimaginable. In fact, he says in the psalm, Psalm 17, I'm sorry, Psalm 22, verse 17, I, I, I look at my life now as I'm on the run and dogs surround me, enemies. A pack of evildoers closes in on me, the forces of Absalom, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. And I can count all my bones, which is an accurate depiction of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Had David's hands literally been pierced and his feet as well? No, but he knows that he's incapacitated by the fact that his son, has risen up against him. And he will not be able to lift a sword and carry that sword into military engagement with his son or his son's forces. He's he's forced to run for his life. And then in verse 19, they stare at me, my men. They gloat and they divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. David knows that back in Jerusalem, as plans are being made to marshal forces significant enough to pursue David and end his life. That his son is heaping scorn upon scorn upon scorn in effort to shame his father. And one of the things he must most most certainly be doing is dividing the garments of David among anyone interested in purchasing them. And David can well imagine that his clothing is being acquired by the casting of lots. Again, That was a thousand years before Jesus. And now, before the very eyes of our Lord, they're casting lots for his clothing. This is why that event happens before Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying to those, and we'll name them in just a moment, at the foot of the cross, is remember Psalm 22. And what's so significant about Psalm 22? Well... It actually appears to predict the sufferings that Jesus will face as a victim crucified. But beyond that, there is in the psalm an absolute sense, an absolute trust, the belief by David that God will save him, will restore him, and will return him to the congregation. Because in verse 20, Psalm 22. But you, Lord, stay not far off. My strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, My, uh, my poor life from the horns of the wild bulls. And here it is, verse 23. Then I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, give praise. It's David's way of saying in the psalm, even at a moment of great despair, I trust in the Lord. I believe in his protective custody and I will return. And David does. David does return to his throne. So those words spoken by Jesus on the cross that were heard by John who was there but are not recorded in his gospel are remembered in verses 24 and following in John Chapter 19, those words spoken after Jesus witnesses them dividing up his clothes and casting lots for them, were to console those at the foot of the cross, saying to them, like David, I too am confident that I will return. I will conquer death. Now, who's at the foot of the cross? In chapter 19, verse 25, standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus, were his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, that would be the aunt of Jesus. Also, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Clopas is one of the male disciples named in Luke chapter 24 in the story of the journey to Emmaus. And he is the one who said, Some women in our company came to the tomb early in the morning and found the stone rolled away and did not find the body, and also present, among others, most certainly, was also Mary of Magdala. Now, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, and we've identified the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple as our gospel author, he said to his mother, speaking in terms of endearment as he did in Cana, so to hear as he spoke as well to the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8? Woman. It means my dear one. Behold your son. Referencing John. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. And Christian tradition had always maintained until the assumption of Mary into heaven. John cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, so that she was assumed into heaven from Ephesus, Mary's house located in Ephesus, because that's where John ended up being the bishop of the church that was founded by St. Paul in that thriving Roman city. Now, after this, in verse 28, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel filled with common wine nearby, so they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had taken the wine, he said he cried out with supreme confidence, It is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. An important point for our consideration Jesus said, I thirst. In the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus comes to the site of uh, the crucifixion, he is offered by them a sedative. The sedative in the form of this same refreshment, this wine mixture that would be given to deaden the pain associated with the immediacy and violent actions of the crucifixion that he would undergo. I'm now reading from Luke chapter 23 and verses 35 and following. People stood by and watched. There were rulers who were sneering at him and were saying to him, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God, he had saved Lazarus from the grave. Why couldn't he save himself? Even the soldiers jeered at him as they approached to offer him wine they called out, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him, there was an inscription that read, this is the king of the Jews. You can see they came to him and they offered him wine, but he refused to drink it. He wasn't ready yet. He wasn't going to drink wine again as he had promised his disciples at the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. I'm searching for my notes. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. At the Last Supper, after consuming the third cup of the Passover Haggadah, the Passover story, Jesus said in verse uh, 29, let me see if I can find that. Yes, here it is in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, this means before they consume the third cup of the Passover meal, the first being the cup of blessing, the second being the cup of the plagues, the third, the cup of redemption, Jesus took bread and said the blessing, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. This is the third of four cups that make up the Passover ritual reenactment and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. Technically, it's the third cup of the Passover. It's the cup of redemption. Once the cup of plagues has been consumed, and the narrative of the plagues has concluded, the Israelites are delivered from their captivity. They are Redeemed. And then he says, I tell you, from now on, I shall not drink this fruit of the vine. And we have to read between the lines again until the day when I drink it with you, new in the kingdom of my Father. And then, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went out to the Mount of Olives before the Passover had officially concluded, before the consumption of the fourth cup of wine, which was called. The cup of acceptance. Now that, of course, is the cup that we've identified as the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that appeared in Jesus' vision of what God had for him. A cup that he didn't want to consume, but if it was possible, could God take it away? And so again, I'll remind you of that. Jesus praying in Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 39 advanced a little while farther and fell prostrate in prayer, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, rousing him up, So you could not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not undergo the test. And... Peter must have come up with some sort of an excuse. And Jesus responds, We only know one side of the conversation. I know, I know. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then withdrawing a second time, he prayed again, My father, if it is not possible that this cup pass without my drinking it, may your will be done. That cup referenced not once, but twice in the olive grove of Gethsemane is the fourth cup of the Passover, right? That cup that Jesus is not going to drink from again until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of heaven until the Passover ritual, the Passover story is completed. My wife and I had occasion on Wednesday evening last week to watch on a YouTube channel, Dennis Prager, the conservative Jewish commentator on public radio, uh, reenact for... Christians who are interested in following along an authentic Jewish Passover. And in the course of the hour-and-a-half truncated presentation, he, of course, mentioned all four cups of the Passover and how the fourth cup brings the Passover liturgy, the Passover uh, journey, to an end. You drink that cup having filled yourself with good food and good wine, for the better part of three or four hours, and you say, with this cup I accept then whatever you have for me in the next year, whatever it may be. Imagine if we were Jewish and a year ago at Passover had consumed the fourth cup and said, whatever you have for me, give me the strength to bear it. We would now know that one of the things God had in mind was a quarantine, was a, was a nationwide, worldwide shutdown in response to a pandemic that none of us, Ever saw coming. Our churches are are closed. We're on live stream broadcasts of sacred liturgy. We're working in a realm that we never could have imagined. But, we drank the fourth cup. And that fourth cup says, we are ready for whatever you have for us. The fourth cup pragmatically is consumed, and the Passover evening then comes to a conclusion. So, I return then to John chapter 19. Jesus, in verse 28, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, meaning Passover might be completed, said, I thirst. And there was a vessel filled with common wine. It had been pro-offered to Jesus upon his arrival at the site of crucifixion, but he had not consumed it. He actually tasted it and then rejected it. The timing wasn't right. So they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had consumed the wine, he said, It's finished. The Passover has now been complete once and for all. And then bowing his head, he handed over his spirit. He suffocated, which is a way every victim will die who is crucified. Now, since it was the preparation day and the hours were fast ticking down toward sundown that particular Friday afternoon, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on that Sabbath, because that Sabbath would be from Friday night of sundown until Saturday night at sundown, and would also mark the Passover, which was unique. It's sort of like when Christmas falls on a Sunday. There's just something more special about that particular reality when December 25th is actually a celebration on a Sunday. Well, that is the case of anticipation of this special Sabbath, which is also a celebration of Passover. So again, a week ago Wednesday, the Jewish faith community around the world for the past 3,500 years celebrated on that particular Wednesday, Passover. But that date changes all the time. Next year, it'll be on a Thursday. The year after that, it'll be on a Friday, and it will be a very special Sabbath day because of that. So, since it was a preparation day, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on that Sabbath, because it was a sacred Sabbath, if you will, for the Sabbath day of that week, of that particular year was a solemn one. The same religious leaders, we call them the Jews, asked Pilate that all three men's legs be broken and that they be taken down. Now this was a violent act and it would amount to taking a baseball bat and then having the executioners shatter the shins of the victims who are being crucified. The body weight could not be borne very long, two or three minutes at the most, by the arms of the crucified victim, and you would then expire from asphyxiation. You you would suffocate to death quite quickly. In fact, it was probably merciful, because otherwise you had the strength with your legs and your arms to live as long as seven days in some instances. But this particular request was predicated upon the fact of the sacredness of that Sabbath, which was also Passover. So, given permission, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other one who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus in the middle and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But they had to be sure. They were reasonably certain that Jesus had expired because the agonizing cries of pain Anguish, torture, and the sounds of two men on either side of Jesus suffocating to death didn't rouse Jesus at all. He had expired, but these are men trained in the art of death. So one soldier thrust his lance into his side, into his left side, the side closest to his heart cavity, and immediately blood and water flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. It's John, our gospel author. He knows that he is speaking the truth, so that you also may come to believe. For this happened, so that the scripture passage might be fulfilled. Again, you hear the voice of John, our gospel author. Not a bone of the body will be broken. And again, another passage says, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. The first quotation from the book of Exodus. The second quotation from the book of the prophet Zechariah. The trained death thrust of that lance held by that Roman soldier punctured the heart cavity and uh, from a medical perspective, what flowed out appeared to be separated serums, blood and water, was an effective way i making sure the victim had in fact expired and indeed was dead. A theological consideration for purposes of the gospel narrative. When on the Temple Mount, the number of sacrificial lambs increases by a factor of thousands. So Flavius Josephus estimates that on that particular Passover, as many as a quarter of a million lambs, may have been slain, you have to do something to drain the blood off of the Temple Mount. And water sufficient had been secured flowing from the north, higher in elevation, across the Temple Mount, and then down through a drain and out through the southeastern corner of the Temple at the level of the Kidron Valley into the Kidron Valley's river and then ultimately into the Dead Sea. It was reported by Flavius Josephus that you knew when the sacrificial system was in full swing because out of the culvert at the base of the temple mount nearest the Kidron Creek, if you will, flowing freely was a coursing liquid that appeared to be commingled colors of water, red and clear. Or in the case of what John is speaking about, it appeared that blood and water flowed out of his side. And when you saw this culvert coursing water into the Kidron, then you know that the animal sacrificial system is in full swing. Passover has begun. So when Jesus cries out, it is finished. The soldier comes and sees that Jesus is dead. But to attest to his authentic, condition of being deceased, drives that lance into his left side, punctures that heart sack, and the water and the blood, it appears having separated flows out, is also reflecting upon the fact that Jesus is the final and proper and holy and unblemished Lamb of God. As John said earliest attestation in the first chapters of the Gospel of John, He is the Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sin of the world. And John, our Gospel author, was a disciple of John the Baptist. So it comes full circle. Now let's finish the chapter and our lecture for today. After all of this, Joseph of Arimathea, secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, boldly went forth and asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus from the cross. And Pilate permitted it. Pilate was going to permit it because he had also given the order that the victim's legs could be broken to facilitate swift death. No need to leave the bodies on the cross. You were already acquiescing uh, to the fact that this is a sacred Passover that particular year because it fell on the Sabbath. So he came and took his body. But what to do with that? Well, Nicodemus, the one who had come to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, joined Joseph of Arimathea, both of them, obviously, disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus, probably less so in secret than Joseph, arrived bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing weighing about 100 pounds. And these would be used uh, as pungent aromatic spices that would be intermingled with the wrappings of the body that would be prepared then for temporary storage in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus is not from that family, but you have to put the body somewhere in anticipation of the beginning of the Passover. Having done so, they took the body of Jesus and bound it with burial cloths along with the spices according to the Jewish burial custom. It would have done swiftly, it would have been done surely, it would have been done with care, and by the way these spices not only suppressed the smells of decay, but also acted in some cases like smelling salts, so that if a person was not all the way dead yet, Jesus obviously was, but in some other circumstance they may revive as a result of the manipulation of their bodies and the aromatic uh, acknowledgement of the smell of these items. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it with those burial cloths along with the spices according to the Jewish burial custom. Now in the place where he had been crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb. The word garden there is an odd translation. It means there was a quarry and stones had been quarried from there. So they had been gardening the quarry and had extracted or harvested all the stones from the quarry. So they called it a garden that had played itself out. There was no longer sufficient stone there to quarry for building projects. So well-heeled persons like Joseph of Arimathea purchased real estate effectively and carved into the abandoned quarry caves, niches, where they then would construct tombs. And these tombs were valuable because you would be interred in them and decompose in them in such close proximity to the gate leading into the holy city. The fact that it was also near the site of a crucifixion center was of no concern of yours uh, because that may or may not be there for all time, but your grave would. So in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden. Read, a garden of stone. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been buried. And so they laid Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation day for the tomb was close by. Close by what? Close by the site of the crucifixion. So it was along the road leading into the western gate of the city of Jerusalem. We keep that in mind. A new tomb in which no one had been buried. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus is not of Arimathea, so this can only be a temporary situation. And we know that there are those watching the proceedings and make note of the place where Jesus is going to be temporarily confined, a stone rolled over the opening, and in particular women will arrive early on Sunday morning to prepare the body for what we would imagine to be an eventual journey back to Nazareth. Now, that's a lot of material in 47 or so minutes, but I'm limited to 50 minutes in these lectures. And so we did well, which means that next Monday, when you tune in again, uh, you can hear the narrative of the resurrection, the conclusion of the gospel, and then a most engaging 21st chapter, which allows us insight into something else that is going on behind the scenes at the time when John is writing his gospel. But for now, that's all your teacher has time to do. And so let's close as we always do with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you will continue to help us find you in your word and study the word with diligence. Open our hearts, our minds, and our spiritual eyes. We ask a blessing upon our pastors and our churches, and we pray that we can support them and encourage them in this time of trial as well. And Father, we pray in thanksgiving for this opportunity of technology that allows us to stay connected to one another. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. And until I see you again, and I will, I know, never forget what a great student you are. Good night, and God bless.